Radical Secular, a podcast dedicated to the separation of church and state and the pursuit of justice. Email us at theradicalsecular at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at radical underscore secular. Follow us on Twitter at radical secular. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hello, and welcome back to The Radical Secular. I'm Sean Prophet. And I'm Christoph Defoe. Today, we have special guest Bob Donaldson to talk to us about moving toward advanced cultures. Bob is the author of the upcoming book, The Lost Art of Collaboration. This is something right up our alley here at The Radical Secular, where we constantly talk about how to harness the best of human nature and our evolutionary psychology to ensure best outcomes. So we're really looking forward to this conversation about that. But first... (laughs) We're going to give you our take on some of the crazy news from this week, including Trump's ongoing and flailing efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election, which at this point have devolved into a giant grift to extract money from his weeping supporters to the tune of over $200 million. And then we have farting Giuliani and his (laughs) his actress witness uh, Saturday Night Live skit that he pulled in the Michigan legislature. And... The Justice Department is investigating presidential pardons for sale. Trump is purging the Pentagon and he is seating loyalists for the last seven weeks of his term. Who knows why? Uh, White House staffers are already quitting their jobs. Uh, We're trying to figure out whether or not he's going to fire Attorney General William Barr. And the Trump sycophants are scary, but their threats of uh, imposing martial law seem like they're ultimately empty. So we'll talk about that. And... We, of course, have to discuss COVID. The COVID crisis goes from bad to worse, with daily death totals now exceeding 9-11. And the last thing we're going to talk about is the tragic loss of the Arecibo Observatory. As of the taping of the show, we are only 46 days away from the inauguration. Fingers crossed. Keep counting down that calendar. But before we get into any of that, I want to remind you to make sure and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're watching this on YouTube, be sure to hit that red subscribe button and be sure to give us a five-star rating on your podcast host and write us a review over at Apple. Positive podcast reviews at Apple will help us grow in their recommendations list much faster than almost anything else. And tell your friends and family about our show. Word of mouth really matters. Okay, now let's get into our t-shirts. I want to talk about my shirt first. This is the cover art for the 1974 Yes album, Relayer. Very, very nice. Very, very nice, man. Yes, great band, Relayer. Talk to us about it. Why this shirt? Okay, so this shirt, you'll probably notice it's got a few stains on it. It's an older shirt. It's one of my favorites. (laughs) Those Um, old band shirts, though, man. (laughs) Like, you know, you just like grow into them. They like feel like skin, you know? It is. I'm going to get another one because I love this shirt so much. It's Roger Dean's artwork, and awesome. he's fantastic. Uh, it's it's you know art worthy of framing, and and he's mm-hmm. still active and 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 doing new artwork, so it's great. But Relayer, the album that's on this shirt, is it contains one of the finest symphonic rock compositions ever recorded. If you haven't heard mm-hmm. it, I suggest you change that because it's <laughs> it's very intense but also beautiful and uh, it deserves headphones and your full attention and maybe some uh, certain substances to enhance the experience. (laughs) Highly recommended, not necessary. (laughs) Nice. Nice. Uh, uh, How about you, Christoph? What's your shirt say today? Yeah. So I'll show, show it off first. Uh, That says 
punk. H. Well, I I can't read the bottom. So, part yeah, of there's that. a lot because it's actually in a circle. So I'll I'll just describe it. So um, <laughs> there is a like a boot print in the middle, um, like a like a combat boot, which is typical of punk rock. I am I grew up listening to punk rock, um, new wave stuff. Really, uh, you know, just ranging from new wave to ska to uh, you know uh, Southern California skate punk. I've been always been into it. Um, and I was also really into grunge um, in that era as well, um, which sort of, I think, morphed in my mind into into that sort of world. So uh, but this one also, it, it says uh, uh, the um, uh, Antifa League, right? Punk rock Antifa, Antifa League. And uh, especially given some of the topics that we are talking about in this news segment and the state of the world, uh, you know, we are anti-fascist on the radical secular. Um, I am an anti-fascist. I am Antifa. We are Antifa unequivocally and unapologetically. Um, we talk about that here all the time. So um, this is actually the first time I wore this shirt on the show, and I'm happy to show it off. And I'm glad. And we are absolutely Antifa. And uh, we, we got to do this news. And I have to tell you that I have not been this angry doing a radical secular episode since we began. I mean, I should feel happy that we won the election. I should feel good about the progress we've made, but I don't. I am pissed off and I'm scared for the future of our country and the world. And I shouldn't be. So, I mean, am I wrong here? How are you feeling today? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I, I keep looking down because um, sometimes my cat walks around my feet, just so everybody knows. Um, I'm a big cat guy, um, but that's a separate matter. Um, uh, it's a separate matter from fascism. <laughs> um, I am concerned. I mean, uh, obviously, this is uh, to, to watch the um president of the united states and his sycophants you know frankly i think what 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 i struggle with the most out of all of this is the republican party um and the mitch mcconnell's and the lindsey grahams they're the people that really make my blood boil uh, trump is being trump right trump is an authoritarian an incompetent authoritarian. Um, his impulses to me are not surprising. Um, they are luckily we have um, a we have a system that is that is old and has been stress test and in some ways has broken, in some ways has bent, in some ways has stood strong, but it's really constrained Trump um, uh, despite the damage that he has done. That said, the Republican Party and their willingness to go along with this, uh, and that we're talking about a moderates are people like um, are people are like Mitt Romney are now moderates. That's what we're. That's the world we're talking. That that really scares me for the future. <laughs> the guy with the uh, binders full of women and the forty seven percent takers and all that. Exactly. Is now a fucking moderate. He's now a fucking moderate. That he's a liberal in that party. He is a liberal. <laughs> they, they they probably think of him as a traitor. Frankly, they I'm sure they do. They do think of him as a traitor. And, and of course, anybody who's not in the cult of Trump is a traitor. And mm -hmm. this is, of course, you know, our topic today is moving toward advanced cultures. And our guest is one of the top experts in his field of team building and collaboration. But increasingly, I'm kind of feeling like the rug is being pulled out from under civilization in big and small ways. And I'm going to mix a whole bunch of metaphors here, and I don't really care <laughs> because I'm pissed off. I mean, we're up here at the top of the pyramid right now, right? With people like Bob trying to fine tune our systems for better outcomes. And the barbarians are hammering at the castle walls with axes and pikes. They're setting fire to the foundations. And I can't help hearing the screams of rape and pillage through the broken windows. 
and I can't help being choked by the smoke from the fires that they're all setting. I mean, this is what I'm feeling. And every time Trump says something new, man, I lose sleep. It's just like, I know I shouldn't give him that kind of power, but it's like he is still the president and he still has that power. And he yeah. is literally like he repeat. He's now repeating himself. He got on. He ruined Thanksgiving. He got on TV on Thanksgiving Ugh. and 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 just ranted for 45 minutes against democracy. And then he did the same thing a couple of days ago again. And he's going to be uh, showing up tonight in Georgia. He's probably doing it right now because it's three hours later there. He's mm. holding a rally in Georgia where he is going to rant and rail against democracy. And he is pissed off at the governor of Georgia for not overturning the election. And so that guy is now considered a traitor. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got a news notification uh, when we started. It may have been earlier today, uh, but it was that reporting from the uh, from Washington Post that, uh, in fact, Trump had recently to maybe today or yesterday called uh, the governor mm -hmm. of Georgia and, 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 and put pressure on him. I mean, just think of what it would be like to be an elected official and have the president of the United States call you also, the president of the United States in your party, right? Yeah. Uh, and 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 have that person pressure you. I mean, it's about as un-American as it comes. Now, like I say, and and I'll probably say this a lot, is that this is Trump being Trump. Um. And uh. And I. I. And I. And you and I were talking earlier today, and I said, right, like if the election had been closer, mm -hmm. if he were really able to turn. Uh, you know, the commandant of the Marine Corps and the uh, chiefs of uh, the, the joint chiefs of staff, et cetera, um, into a uh, into uh, people who are into um, what's the word I'm looking for to be complicit in a coup. He would. It's not even a question. And, and beyond that, and this is what's important, Sean, beyond that, the Republicans would almost certainly go along with it. They would justify it. They would call, oh, it's not really martial law. It's just a security thing. So that and, and that second piece is what really, really terrifies me, because Mitch McConnell is not going anywhere. Even if we take the Senate back, Mitch McConnell is still not going anywhere. Lindsey Graham's not going anywhere. And by the way, right. the, the structural... Uh, the structural uh, advantage that the GOP enjoys in the Senate and mm -hmm. in the Electoral College is not going anywhere. Those are the things that terrify me going forward. Trump. Now, I almost get like, well, I don't enjoy it at all. Actually, it's terrifying. But I but I look at him and he just looks perpetually sad. He looks like he's always pouting. He look and and you know and I and this the Schadenfreude of watching of knowing how miserable he is. He is yeah. so unhappy, Sean. He is no, as, uh, he is like crying inside and probably outside like every fucking day. No, it's driving him. It's driving him absolutely insane. It's and, driving you know, him it, nuts. It, it would be pure Schadenfreude if. He didn't have the the, the presidential power. power that he has, and yep. and this is what I want to go back to because we already did have a coup, and that was in two thousand. Okay, this sure. was this was a, a a coup where the election was literally handed to a Republican by the Supreme Court, and some of the people who did that are still on the Supreme Court. And Amy Coney Barrett was just appointed, and she was involved in that whole scam. And so we already did have this happen. And I'm telling you right now that if if this came down to one state, Trump already would have overturned the election. I guarantee to you. And the, the reason he can't do it and the reason none of these guys are, are participating with him is because you can't overturn five states. And that's what he would need. He would need at least three. And so what they're all saying to themselves is, you know, if I do this, it's not going to matter unless they do it. 
And so thankfully, they're all thinking to themselves, we can't all do this and get away with it. And that is the only reason why we're not having a coup right now. And I'm still very, very concerned about about what's happening because Brian Kemp, as you know, is is a major. He was the secretary of state of of Georgia before he became governor. And he was involved in defeating, basically launching a state coup against Stacey Abrams, who mm-hmm. would have otherwise won the election if he hadn't disenfranchised a lot of black people. And that was that that's just that election was stolen. So what essentially happened is that Stacey Abrams went in there and she registered a lot of black people that hadn't been registered before, all legal, fully legal, and reversed that coup. Okay, and so this is what is pissing these guys off so much is that with all of their manipulation and voter suppression and everything else that they've done, they got outmaneuvered and and they're furious. And and so it's just a question of, you know, what they might do. And, and this is this is the thing that is that is keeping me up at night. And because it's just impossible for me to accept that a substantial portion of Americans now believe that even though Joe Biden got the most votes of any president elect in American history, that the election has somehow been stolen from Donald Trump. I mean, only 20% of Republicans accept the true result, according to the New York Times. And it's pretty clear that a lot of the other 80% are in some one of the five stages of grief and ultimately will come to accept the result. But it's a frightening prospect for American democracy, even if half of Republicans ultimately refuse to accept that Joe Biden is a legitimate president. That's incredibly damaging to our future. And I don't know if you saw that uh, Trump tweeted out that Trump, uh, that Joe Biden could never be called president. He should be called the presidential occupant. And he's literally just step by step hammering, trying to delegitimize the election. And he is the barbarian sacking our city at this point. And and so, you know, all 40 plus whatever it was of his bogus election fraud lawsuits have been tossed out of court, many by Republican Trump appointees, and they have written stinging, blistering rebukes from the bench uh, saying that this was an attack on democracy and it should not and cannot stand. And it still hasn't moved the needle for either Trump himself or the hundreds of sycophants among House and Senate Republicans who still refuse to refer to Joe Biden as the president-elect. And multiple prominent people in the GOP and right-wing media are still insisting that it's 100% certainty that Donald Trump will serve a second term. And outraged Republicans have donated well over $200 million to the GOP after the election. This brings Trump's fundraising total since mid-October to a staggering $450 million. And I mean, what do you think? Is this just, I mean, am I overreacting here? Is this just a big grift? Is this, are they all doing this just, are they play acting? Or are, are, are you think still uh, Trump is thinking that he's going to be president? So I think, I think um, I, I agree with, uh, with much, if not all of what you just said. I think, I mean, I do agree with everything you just said um, over Overall, I think that um, that there are a couple of dynamics here. There is the Trump himself dynamic, which is, is a guy who is literally incapable of 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 conceding defeat or understanding that he could have actually lost. I believe that he knows that he lost technically, but I think that in terms of in terms of his public persona, this is something that he cannot his ego cannot accept that. And I think that there is an entire infrastructure around him to try and help him um, sort of deal with this, come to terms with this, to, 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 uh, to help him just to work through this. And I think the entire um, lawsuit 
like thing and the um, the electoral thing, the electors thing, trying to pressure electors or uh, et cetera. I really think that for those of people who are below him, uh, I think they're like almost humoring him. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and he he you know, he's all holding out hope, I think. Um, but so there's that Trump world. And then there's the Republicans and the yeah. Republicans are doing this. It's pure power, pure mm -hmm. power. Right. They've been riding this tiger, this racist tiger since mm -hmm. whatever the 60s. And they and and no one's ready to get off of it, because if you get off of it, your political career is over. And mm -hmm. these people are not statesmen and stateswomen. They are mm -hmm. selfish, power hungry pieces of garbage. Right. Mm -hmm. And and the problem with politics, of course, is it attracts people who want power. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, and it, it, it necessarily does. It also attracts people who want to do the right thing. But even those people who want to do the right thing are the kind of people who want power. Right. That's why they're there. And mm -hmm. It's really easy for that to go sideways. So in terms of the concern, like I am absolutely concerned about this, but like my concern and you hit you, you, you talked about this earlier is, is what this means for the electorate going forward. We have, we have 80 or like, like uh, whatever you said, 80%, 80% of Republicans. Yeah. They don't believe the election was right? legitimate. Who, who, and, and, and that is just. So and and also the, and and of course a president a sitting president who is who is fostering and throwing fuel on that fire deliberately for his own ego every day every, every day. single day and so I think it's 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 all of it's everything it is part grift right it, mm -hmm. it is but like I it is part just delusion it is part man maybe we really can pull this off right and and somehow overturn the election I mean, he called Brian Kemp right he know he well, is really is actually trying right publicly publicly he invited publicly. He invited the representatives from Michigan to come to the White House. He 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 invited the representatives from Pennsylvania to come to the White House. They said no. But then you also have this situation where right now I think it's 75 Republicans from Pennsylvania are actually petitioning to uh, submit an alternate slate of electors. I don't think it's going to yeah. go anywhere, but, right. uh, but because still. the go the governor's already said no, and it's the right. governor who ultimately has to sign off on it. And it's you know when once the once that slate of electors is appointed, which it already has been, mm -hmm. that's it. And that's it. And if there's a dispute, it, it has to, it goes to both houses of Congress. Mm -hmm. And there, since we control one house of Congress, it's not going to ever be changed. So, but I just the, the fact that they keep trying, the fact that there's any chance, you know, of them succeeding, and then you got the the clown, the real clown car, you know, farting Giuliani and <laughs> and and the and the shit show, right? Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. this this his witness was an actress. You can't and make this shit up. Really, she had been convicted of internet sexual harassment. Okay, so she's she is a convicted criminal, an actress. You could run that entire scene as a Saturday Night Live skit with no editing whatsoever. All you have to do is figure out who's going to play the parts. Honestly, honestly, and and speaking of of Giuliani, I mean, this is a guy who has been so discredited um, and uh, literally laughed out of court. I mean. A first year law student knows what strict scrutiny is, right? And and he, the judge, I mean, this is famous now. Uh, the, the judge asked him, he's like, so what kind of, uh, uh, what uh, what uh, standard of view should I apply to this case? And he's like, and Juliana's response, this is a, a lawyer. His response was the normal one. 
the <laughs> normal one? What the fuck does that mean? So then they, so the answer to that question is so strict scrutiny. And he's like, no, 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 not strict scrutiny. I was like, wow. So my point is that like, wow, what a fucking hack. And this is a really interesting conversation to talk about his, the, um, the, the pardons. Right. And this well, whole idea even, of like, you know, it's not the even idea- that. Go ahead. Sorry, I'm sorry. Sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to just interject. It's not even that he's a hack. I wish he were a hack because, but he knows better. And so why is he doing it? I think he's doing it because again, like, again, I think we can't underestimate the way that Trump runs his orbit is like a mobster. Right. And, and that is how he runs it. Everyone is like, it, it, you know, Everyone is a sycophant to him, right? It's like they are under a spell, right? And 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 it is a like sort of a, a sealed universe of insanity. We've seen these books come out over and over again. I think that after the administration's over, the floodgates will open, right? Um, people just trying to make some money on the back end um, and, and 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 talk to reporters, or whatever. But I really what like you they. When you're in Trump's orbit, when you're in the orbit of a person like that, a cult of personality, a uh, think about a King, a, a Kim Jong Un, or um, these these dictators who have complete control, as as if people that are under them are in a trance. Mm-hmm. And I really, and I mean, uh, you know, what's his face, the fixer, that guy back in. Uh, uh, he described this. Um, his uh, his his attorney, who was also the fixer, oh, uh, Cohen, Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen described this in his testimony. Mm-hmm. Like you don't, it, we as rational people on the outside, we don't see, feel what it's like to be on the inside like that. You are in a spell. It is an abusive yeah. relationship, and that is why people will 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 throw themselves under the bus. Like Giuliani has completely destroyed his reputation and 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 just like just like cohen cohen believed that at the end the boss would look out for him right the boss yeah. didn't look out for him though and the and boss not is going not going to look out for giuliani either giuliani is a prosecutor who took down the fucking mob it's unbelievable how, how can you how can you go walk in there and and screw something up that a that a, a first year law student would know i mean it exactly. just doesn't it just Ah, this is why this, these are the things that keep me up nights because what do they know that we don't know? And the only thing I can come, come back to is just the general right wing attitude toward democracy. And, and th- we, we've, we've talked about this till we're blue in the face, but I got to hit it again because there's something else that we haven't mentioned. And that is I was reading back around the time when Obama got elected the first time and there were, there were a lot of Christian and right wing, um, organizers. Uh, I forget the guys, Richard Vigory. I don't know if he's still involved in that, but there are, there are mm. various bundlers and organizers. And, and then there are people in the Christian right who discuss the idea that Christians, if things kept going the way they were going under Obama and we kept becoming more secular, more democratic, and we kept uh, expanding the social safety net, that Christianity was going to have to go into exile in the United States, that Christians were going to have to build their own communities that were separate from the rest of the country and that they would be in these little enclaves and they would literally section themselves off and cordon themselves off from the rest of society so they could build uh, the communities the way they wanted to build them that were discriminatory, that were unequal, hierarchical, that were, that were theocratic, uh, where the, the all the rights that were being granted under civil rights law didn't exist. And this is this is what they were thinking about doing was 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 just bifurcating American society. Well, instead, 
now they've come into power in a huge way. And so, um, and it makes me ask, what do the Christian nationalists who support Trump really want? Do they want presidential pardons to be for sale? Do they want people like Michael Flynn and Roger Stone and Joe Arpaio walking around free? Do they want to destroy the rule of law in the country? And the answer is yes, they do. And, you know, CNN reported this week that the Justice Department is now investigating the Trump administration for offering pardons in exchange for donations to the Trump campaign or political action committee. No one's been indicted yet, but there was a raid over the summer on an attorney's office who has not yet been named and documents with evidence of the scheme were seized. This is insane. I, I know you got something to say about the pardon, so. Yeah, I mean, yes, it is, wow, just so insane um, and terrifying that, you know, the pardon process is one of the most absolute, the, 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 the power, the, the, the power, the pardon power, excuse me, uh, is one of the most sort of, uh, unquestionable powers in the constitution for the president um unfettered i guess is a way to put it and uh but of course they're not supposed to be for sale and there's a there's a whole process like intern in inside the white house for how um how people apply for for pardons and they apply through attorneys and i assume that one of the attorneys uh because I, there wasn't an individual i think um uh, an individual i think that one of the the person who was uh talked about in the lawsuit was 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 an attorney for a person applying for a mm -hmm. applying for a pardon or whatever um and so yeah so the pardon power is big i mean the pardon, pardon power is strong and uh and there is some precedent i think right for this idea that you that a president can well there's an argument that, that the president can pardon himself there's a part there's an argument that, that the president can't pardon himself there's certainly the president can't can't grant forward-looking pardons to anybody. So you, you can't just be like, all right, Rudy Giuliani, for example. Um, we don't know what law, what, what what crimes you may have committed, but now here's your get out of jail free card for mm -hmm. indefinite sort of pardons. Like it doesn't work that way. You'd have to have to, there has to be something that you did, right? That you that that or that that is right on the horizon um, that you wanted that you wanted to give out a pardon for. So um but the 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 pay for pardon scheme like that's something if that's true if that's mm -hmm. real right that will undermine even the generally unfettered power the president has to pardon and by the way mm -hmm. it always leaves a bad the whole pardoning thing always leaves a bad taste in my mouth because you know presidents on the right and the left have done it um do it all the time at the end um clinton uh, notoriously didn't go through the traditional process through the white house to give a pardon to one person who i can't remember right now who owed him a favor and so clinton uh, uh so uh bill clinton is has come under scrutiny for that but i think that we're going to see um in the next few weeks several weeks the trump administration dole out pardons in the most unethical left way left and, uh, right. left and right yeah well and, and if you contrast that with what President Obama did, mm -hmm. he, from my recollection, pardoned about 400 nonviolent drug offenders, mm -hmm. which I think was, you know, nobody can really question that because the entire country is moving towards uh, drug legalization at this point, And he was just a little early. Yep. So. Absolutely. Uh, well, it just it's just really undermines the rule of law. I mean, I think it's, it's probably a good idea that a chief executive of a country or a governor would have some ability to, but it should be restricted. I can't, I just, it just can't be just 
whoever they feel like, because that is a an open invitation for cronyism. Absolutely. And you know what? This goes to what we talk about a lot on this show, and that is, uh, right, that we cannot trust. At, at The Trump era has shown us, has revealed that the era in which we could trust statesmen and straight stateswomen to do the right thing because of shame or because of a sense of obligation or because of a love of the country, those days are gone. Now yeah. we need rules, clear rules with teeth to, to restrain behavior because Trump has set, and this really is my biggest fear, and I've said it many times over the course of this conversation, um, my biggest fear is what it means going forward, what the what precedent is set by what Trump does. Mm -hmm. And um, and what, when, what happens when a person who is not incompetent, right? A person who mm -hmm. is savvy, um, gets, oh, yeah. you know, what a happens savvy when authoritarian. they- Exactly, exactly, yeah. a Putin. Putin mm -hmm. is the, is the, a quintessential example. He is about as savvy as they come, probably the richest person on the planet. And mm -hmm. um, and he had he he navigated an admittedly much less developed democracy um, such that it was um, when he took it when he took it over. But he has converted that into his own private authoritarian regime. Yeah. Yeah. And this is exactly what Trump has been trying to do the entire time. Every yep. every chance he's gotten, he's put every time in. And he's now doing the same thing uh, in the DOD. I mean, he seated Corey Lewandowski and David Bossie on the Defense Business Board. Those two are the ultimate inner circle loyal loyalists. They are mm. former campaign managers for Trump. And David Bossie wrote a book. Okay. And basically, they were both involved in getting him elected in the first place. And now he's put them on this Defense Business Board. It kind of it scares the shit out of me because, like, he's supposed to be leaving the White House in seven weeks, and he still thinks this is something that's going to matter, that's important to do. What the fuck is he planning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we this week we have current and former public officials calling for the declaration of martial law to overturn the election, including Michael Flynn, who was just pardoned, and Scott O'Grady who is Trump's nominee for Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. This is a guy who is literally this far away from being put in charge of a big part of the Pentagon, okay? And he is calling for a military coup. So, yeah, you know, <laughs> this, this fucking lunatic is nominating batshit conspiracy theorists to lead the Pentagon. I mean, what could go wrong? Yeah, um, a lot of things. Uh <laughs> Um, uh, you know, so my, uh, my feeling on this is that I, I think a couple things, and this is, I guess, a recurring theme that I keep coming back to and this idea that there's, there, there uh, many things can be true at once. One is Trump would love to do a military coup, but I don't think he can be, um, or two, um, he is incompetent and therefore can't, which is, I guess, part of one. Um, but the third thing is that even if um, he's unable to to uh, to to do a coup, what he will do is two things, and that is uh, take a wrecking ball because that's just mm -hmm. how he is, and just destroy, just destroy, 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 destroy for the sake of destroying. That's for S one, um, and not even like consciously or deliberately, just by implication. It's just what he does. The second mm -hmm. part is grift. And so when I hear about people, Toady is being placed in positions of, of um, influence in the Pentagon, what I hear is um, there is some financial incentive 
like mm-hmm. th- these guys are somehow going to make the Trump organization or Trump or themselves more yeah. d- money somehow. Right. And, and that is, I think at this point, it's like they see the writing on the wall and everyone is just taking all the good China, all the curtains, the, the mm-hmm. TVs off the walls as they run out the door. That's what I see is happening right now. Yeah. And it's like it's also it can't be overstated how terrible it is that people in our government have said these things out loud. Oh, like the idea that there are actually Republicans who are saying out loud that we should redo the election uh, or that we should have a military coup. Um, and it's it's just a good thing. I don't know if there's any redeeming qualities uh, in someone like like William Barr, but at the very <laughs> least, he did not go along with the idea that there was election fraud. And I'm shocked about that, by the way. I like I that was a genuine surprise for, to me. I mean, this is after the former cybersecurity chief, Chris Krebs, was fired for saying the very damn same thing. And he faced death threats. Yep. And Barr said it again a few days later, like, like, like a week later. And so, I mean, I just want to know if Barr can keep his job. And is it too late to even matter at this point if he fires Barr? I mean, what happens? Yeah, I, I guess a great question. And and I think that he probably, Bill Barr has been a loyal sycophant for the last however many years. I don't think he's going to go anywhere. I just don't think, I mean, it would just mean that there would be no attorney general at all um, in, for any practical purpose. I mean, there would be a deputy, you know, or a, uh, not deputy, but a, uh, you know, an acting attorney general, I imagine. But, but I just don't see it. But then again, you know what? I'm thinking about this now in real time. And Trump is and as and this gets back to my theme for today. Trump doesn't do he's not playing four-dimensional chess. He's not. He's not. He is acting on his gut instincts on any given time. And so he could he could fire Bill Barr uh tomorrow by tweet because Sean Hannity told him to mm-hmm. tonight. Literally. I mean, th- th- that is literally how this is. Like, like, and I and I think it's really important for our listeners. I mean, and this is just my view, of course, but um, you know, I'm not speaking for the whole show. I'm speaking for myself. But, you know, I, I don't think that Trump has any grand designs. I think he acts really like from his gut um, on the uh, people. Someone like Stephen Miller has grand designs. Someone mm-hmm. like what like uh, what's his face that got that got kicked out in the very beginning. Um, uh, the Yeah. Right. Bannon. He had grand designs. Trump doesn't. His only grand design is just fulfilling the black hole, empty black hole of narcissism that's within him. That's it. That is it. The authoritarianism is just a it's just a and that's why the authoritarianism isn't authoritarianism isn't even effective. It's bad authoritarianism. It's just destructive. It's just destructive. It doesn't accomplish anything. He hasn't accomplished anything. The only thing that he's accomplished are things that have been hobby horses for people who in his administration, for people who um, like 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 uh, Miller. Right. The immigration thing. That's yeah. because that was his hobby horse. And he spent his entire four years trying to make do racist things, you know. Yeah. And I just heard today that they have uh, tightened the citizenship questionnaire test that you have to take when you become a citizen. They've mm-hmm. doubled the number of questions and they've increased Jesus. the difficulty of the questions to the point where uh, Michael Smirkonish was basically saying that, you know, he doubts that most U.S. citizens could pass this test. So, yeah, another element of racism on the way out the door. And yeah. <clears throat> so this Sick. whole thing, but what you're saying about him being effective is 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 a perfect segue into our next subject because we're like 25 minutes or whatever into the show and we mm-hmm. haven't even brought up COVID. And uh. why? 
Why haven't we brought up COVID? Because Trump's bullshit has sucked all the oxygen out of the room. His post-election bullshit is literally the only thing anyone's talking about. And we have the hospitals are full. We have a 9-11's worth of people who are dying every day. We're on the verge of triage. Hospitals are already turning people away. And still, we have anti-maskers and anti-lockdown protesters furiously retreating once again into their bubble of unreality as the bodies pile up. I just read yesterday somebody saying, oh, don't live in fear. 99% oh, of people recover. I can't. <sighs> dude, dude, like that 99% recovery thing drives me up the fucking wall and you know what also drives me up the wall is the idea that like well you know this and this is the soft sort of underbelly of ignorance and it's because it's not like it's it's not like i won't wear a mask or it's not that uh you know i don't think other people should wear masks it's not that i think covid19 is a hoax all those people are just way out there in the bat shit but mm -hmm. here are people that are in very very people you know them i know them they're on facebook they're my they're my family they're my friends they're people that i know and they say well, look, you know, if I understand that people don't want to take the risk, but that's okay. For me, I don't mind. I don't mind taking the risk. If you want to stay home, you should stay home. But mm. what they don't understand, what they don't understand is statistics. And they don't understand that every time they leave the house, it's not about you, you asshole. It's no. about it's about the fucking pandemic. Every time you decide to go out there, you are increasing the risk that someone else is get sick. Statistically it's a speaking, shame. it's a it, shame. It's it, it doesn't it's not just about you. And that is what this really comes down to, Sean, is that these people don't realize that it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about saving other people's lives. It's about keeping making our economy work again. It's about also, solving this global problem. It's not about you. So whether or not you feel the risk is beside the point. The point is you should stay home so that the people that are out there are only the people that have to be out there. And therefore they are less likely to get sick. It's not about you. That drives me up the fucking wall. It, it, the, I mean, these, these chuckle fucks, man. I mean, they sit there and they talk about how, oh, it's not that serious, don't live in fear. Next thing you know, they got a tube down their throat and they're drowning in their own fluids. Exactly. And then they're like, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, take it seriously. It's like, you motherfucker. Exactly, exactly. And and, and again, it's, it's oh boy, it just drives me nuts. It's it's like this lack of understanding of how one, how it, how, how it impacts. I mean, we talked about uh, around a couple of, uh, episodes ago, we talked about how people don't understand polls, right? They don't understand samples. They don't, like we don't understand, like the human brain doesn't naturally understand these things. So we think mm -hmm. that like, we are all very us centric, right? And we and we think in terms of groups of like 20 people. That's like, that's how we, that's how our brains work. We don't think in terms of societal problems. And that if you keep adding people to the overall group of people that is outside every day, you are increasing the rate. Even if you don't get sick, you are increasing yeah. the statistical likelihood that more people will get sick. It is something that people cannot wrap their minds around. They're like, well, I take care. You stay home if you want to. And again, it drives me nuts because these aren't anti-maskers necessarily, right? These aren't people no. that are deniers. They just don't understand how this works and why every time you step out of your house, you are taking when you don't have to, right? It's Every a, time it's, you, yeah, it's, you it's are, a, you are, go ahead. It's a collective action problem. And, yes. and what that means is that everyone's behavior affects everyone else at all times, even if they don't realize how exactly, exactly.
So it's, you know, and, and they're also, that's my rant for today. Yeah, no, <laughs> we had both had our good. rants. And by the way, by the way, I think your idea was really good. We've got to have Joe Okapinti on here again to yes. talk about it because he's got the latest dump of some statistics and just, just the way this is going. Now we're starting yes. to see how this is going to shape up now that we've completely, you know, screwed the pooch on the whole deal. Um, now we're going to see what this is going to look like come March or April. Okay, and so we'll we'll have him on a future show. But I want to talk about what's really driving the nail in the coffin, and that is that from the very top, the White House and the State Department are setting a terrible example. They're hosting mm -hmm. a parade of holiday parties. They're oh. inviting hundreds of people. I actually made a meme showing the showing the Holocaust and people being loaded into railroad cars because that is literally what it's like if you get an invitation to one of these parties. And mm -hmm. um, you know, and then Matt Gates. Oh my God! I this story. I know this. Go ahead, tell the story because Jesus Christ is right. This is right this in my backyard. Your state. This, this is, is right in my, your state. This is in my city. This is oh, in my in your, city. Yeah. Holy, holy shit! Well, <laughs> yeah, it's very personal. They had, <laughs> very they personal. Had a, well, they had a party. They had a party somewhere in your city, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and and he posted a picture of all these people, 20, 30 grinning, leering Republicans Ugh. having this party, uh, and he got called out by the governor. The governor said, "You're not welcome here," God and. He shot back and, you know, Matt Gates is just a he's just a fucking deplorable. He's the one who came into Congress with an actual gas mask on to make fun of the whole thing. Yep. Yep. So, yep. you know, 3000 Americans are dying every day. and You won't fucking do your job. So it's just um, so irresponsible. The, the FDA is is also dragging their heels. Uh, they're not even meeting till December 10th to approve the Pfizer vaccine, which has already been approved in the UK. And this guy, uh, I saw another clip of this guy John, from Johns Hopkins, Professor Marty McCary. He called it Operation Turtle Speed instead of Operation <laughs> Warp Speed. Because, I mean, what the hell? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And, I mean, you know, I, I, it, what I'm reminded of is uh, and a, a, a company that shall remain nameless and an employee of that company who is, who is a friend of mine who shall also remain nameless, uh, you know, has to go to work from time to time and the bosses walk around with no masks on right and they have been they are ultra ultra wealthy people like i mean ultra wealthy and they walk around and they don't wear masks and they fly on private planes and um but of course because they are so wealthy and so powerful in an organization there's an entire infrastructure that's required to make their lives work, right? Like mm -hmm. even for them just to get from their from their place to their from their home to the job may require a helicopter. It may mm -hmm. require it definitely requires a driver and it mm -hmm. requires and then when they get to work, it requires assistance. It requires an entire staff to keep the building on and running. So they have cooks and nannies and they it, got everything. <laughs> exactly. So they're not living the way we're living. But meanwhile, the people that have to go there and support them, mm -hmm. they are living like you and I are living, right? They mm -hmm. are being exposed. They don't have the, the kind of healthcare that, that these guys and, and women enjoy. And so yeah. that's what really drives me fucking nuts about this thing. Because like, they don't fucking care. They don't care. And that's the whole problem with this entire, with the, with the way that, that capitalism runs in America is that like, if you are in that class, you are just so separate from how normal people live their lives that it's just so easy to think like, this is not a big deal. Why not go to work? No. Right. It's a cocoon. They're basically royalty. Yep. They're modern that's royalty. Right. You They're know? modern and royalty. It's it's disgusting. Well, um, 
One more thing, and then we got to go to our guest segment. Uh, I just want to talk about briefly the sad news out of Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. which is that we lost the Arecibo Observatory this week, and it's it's done. It's for good. It was the world's largest single aperture telescope, a title it held for 53 years until China brought its 500-meter telescope online in 2016. And so what happened this week, and they caught it on film, uh, they had a drone up and they had another uh, stationary camera and the nearly thousand ton superstructure of Arecibo's radio telescope slammed into the dish after the cables that had held it in place for over 50 years snapped. It's a scientific tragedy. It's on the level of the space shuttle blowing up as far as I'm concerned. And mm. a lot of people barely noticed because guess what? We are watching the Trump show and the COVID show and which is the same thing. So... <laughs> Anyway, among other things, Arecibo was used in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or SETI, and also the all-important job of monitoring near-Earth asteroids. So guess what? We're now kind of blind to near-Earth asteroids, although we have other telescopes. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, it's really depressing. And uh, and another element that I want to think about here is why this is something that, uh, that people tend not to care about. It's because people don't understand how science connects to real life, right? So um, people think of science in some sort of category with people in like, you know, with the uh, you know, white jackets and little goggles and like they're doing science stuff over there. And then over here, there's religion. And then somewhere in the middle is us and um, <laughs> and and we're all separate. Like as if those things don't, but like science is just reality, right? Like scientific mm-hmm. discovery is just understanding reality better. Keeping it's not like, open. it's not separate, you know, <laughs> not separate. So when we lose something like this, it's a big fucking deal, especially because the, like the, because science is so grossly underfunded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And exactly. And you would think, I mean, in other eras of, of, of our history, if something like that happened, you would, Congress would have immediately been talking about, okay, what's the replacement? What are we going to exactly. do? Blah, blah, blah. Yep. And now it's like not a fucking word from nope. anyone. Nope. So, well, only 46 days from today, Joe Biden will be sworn in as the 46th president. And it's a real testament to our times that we have to add the caveat, we hope, to that statement. Biden will be sworn in if our very own homegrown King Lear doesn't hijack (laughs) the process by starting a war, declaring martial law, or telling his proud boy goons to attack. Our national reprobate, which is what uh, I think it's a great word for him, (laughs) <laughs> our orange Caligula, our mango Mussolini is headed to Georgia tonight for this hate rally. And he's supposed to be getting out the vote for Georgia Senate runoffs that will determine the balance of power in the U.S. Senate. But in order to do that, he's telling Republican voters to show up and vote in the same system with the same voting machines that he claims are rigged. And this is the real problem with Trump's election fraud claim. Republicans won a lot of victories in other state and local races. So if we cheated, why didn't they lose those races? If the entire election is fraudulent, they should have lost. So uh, he's going to no doubt spend most of the time at his Georgia rally whining and recapitulating his denial of his resounding election loss while pounding the podium uselessly screaming at Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp to try to tamper with the Electoral College, as we already talked about, and give him a second term in spite of the fact that he lost the state. So Kemp has already forcefully denied this request more than once. So, I mean, I think that wraps it up. What else could go wrong in the next seven weeks? Anybody's guess, man. We shall see, my friend. And we can be certain, we can be absolutely certain, everybody out there, that the shenanigans and the histrionics will continue until the day of the inauguration, which, of course, Trump will not 
uh, has already said that he will not attend because he is in. I mean, it's just so funny, right? Because like, did he, does he, he, does he really, you know, he, he can't really think, I don't think he really thinks much, but think about that. Like it'll make him look better if he doesn't go to the inauguration, right? Like it just makes him look like a sore loser. And, and well, that is it's like a comically bad sore loser, you know? So, um, and he is a sore loser. He's a piece of shit. He's a selfish piece of garbage, grifting con man. And now everybody who is not wrapped up in his cult knows it. Yeah. Well, and he's going to, if care, if he holds true to character, such as it is, he's going to counter program the inauguration. And that's just what he does. So we'll see how that goes. All right. Now I'd like to introduce our guest. Bob Donaldson is a change management expert based in Northern California. He has served in public water systems such as Silicon Valley Clean Water, Monterey One Water, Calveras County Water District, and Dublin San Ramon Service District. He's also worked for private engineering firms, including Pinnacle Art, Whitley Burchett, and Kennedy Jenks and a host of corporate clients. In the mid-1980s, he joined an organization that was recovering from a labor strike. Employees were at odds, people were keying cars, vandalizing lockers, throwing lunches in the garbage, and placing nails against car tires. Verbally backstabbing and publicly slandering people was a full-on sport. Drugs and alcohol use was occurring on company time. Morale was low and organizational efficiency was extremely poor. It was the Wild West. When he first arrived, he put the focus squarely on behavior. It was surprisingly controversial. Management had already placed some very good performance dimensions in place. Nearly all of these were behavior-based and they went unenforced. As a shift supervisor, Bob started outlining the desired behaviors in great detail. Many of the worst offenders tried to avoid being assigned to his shift, but some found the presence of behavioral standards refreshing and actually clamored to be assigned to his shift. Interestingly, those who wanted to be on his shift ended up becoming his shift supervisors years later when he was promoted to operations manager of the plant. Bob believes that a strong workforce begins with employee empowerment. He initiated programs that increased employees' values to their current and future employers. In the face of extreme internal resistance and at times physical intimidation and threats, he persevered with these changes. These collaborative behaviors and programs eventually provided increased educational opportunities improved communication and accountability. These became the cornerstones of greater efficiency and employee empowerment. Within five years, this group became an award-winning model that the industry held as an example. The organization became a well-oiled machine, and that translated into highly motivated and efficient work teams that either met or exceeded all objectives of its mission statement. So without further delay, we bring you Bob Donaldson. Thank you so much for being with us, Bob Donaldson. First, I'd like to ask you about your T-shirt. What are you wearing today? Yeah, I'm pretty. I'm pretty proud to display this. Let me just lean up towards the uh, the uh, uh, the the camera. It says "Wow," and it's for Warnock Ossoff win. And uh, as we know, uh, Georgia is the is the next uh, state in play uh, for controlling the Senate and making sure that the Biden-Harris uh, agenda is officially and authentically implemented. Um, and I think, uh, you know, having uh, Kamala, you know, be the, the tiebreaker uh, is, is enough to control the Senate and get that agenda out on the streets, because right now it's all words. And if it's not on the street, it doesn't matter. 
the other thing that I, I want to uh, just expose is just to remind people that uh, there's already a House resolution that uh, gives a Washington, D.C. statehood. Mm. And, and the moment uh, uh, the Democrats control the Senate, uh, they can pass the House resolution as well. And once D.C. has statehood, well, you know, D.C. is pretty blue. And so there's two more senators in the blue category. So we would jump from 50 to 52. Um, and that helps to hedge the bet. And of course, it wouldn't be effective until two years from now. But if we have Kamala Harris breaking the ties, then we're, we're fine for two years until that happens. So, um, yes. so and, and there's other opportunities in, in, in two years from now as well. So uh, so it's it's an exciting time. But the, the first thing everybody needs to do right now is is to go to uh, uh, Warnock and Ossoff's uh, campaign uh, sites and uh, donate on a weekly basis. That's what I'm encouraging everybody to do. That's what I'm doing is uh, trying to put my treasure towards the goal. Us and too. I'm encouraging, every, encouraging everybody to do the same, throw, throw, throw some money at it. And so I got a weekly contribution going until uh, January 5th. And, uh, and hopefully, hopefully we'll see what happens. But uh, right now there's a, an incredible dynamic going on, as you know, uh, with the Republicans in Georgia uh, and there's a lot of uh, you know Trumpers uh, exciting people to not come out because it's so corrupt. Um, and all I can say is perfect. Later, yeah. I know we were just talking about this in the <laughs> intro to this to uh, to the show and the news segment. But uh, well, this is all very good to hear, and thank you for that. And I sure. I want to get into the reason why you're here, which is to talk about your very first management experience um, and how you handled that. It was when it was the Wild West and laying down some basic ground rules, because uh, it seems like the various rules that you laid down at that point from your uh, from your background document uh, should go without saying. And I'd like to kind of mention these because it's goddamn funny that you had to seriously say these things to adults. So you <laughs> told people no angry outbursts in the lunchroom, no verbally bashing people, no slamming doors or throwing trash cans in response to an assignment no failing to complete your assigned tasks, no threats, no leaving your shift for three hours at a time, no falsifying reports, and no coming to work smelling like whiskey. <laughs> how, how common Remarkable. is it? Yeah. Uh, how common is it in your career that you found uh, workplace cultures that tolerate those behaviors? Well, uh, what you find is uh, in, in groups that have very weak leadership structures, uh, everybody starts to operate as an independent contractor. Mm. So as, as the weakness in, in leadership goes up, independent contractor population goes up, and, and then you find some really notorious behaviors. And, ju and just know that Everything that you look at or watch on the nightly news is actually walking into your workplace every day unless you do something about it, unless you exert a level of uh, control, a level of principles and, 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 and cultural rules by which we are going to interact. And we'll talk a little bit about that, I think, as, we, as the show progresses. Um, so uh, it, uh, th that is probably the worst I've ever seen it. Uh, yeah, this was back also back in the 1980s. Uh, things have changed uh, over the last 40 years or so. 
Um, <laughs> but but at the same time, every group is susceptible to that. If you have a very weak leadership structure, that's you're vulnerable. Yeah. Well, on, on this show, we often talk about utilitarianism and best outcomes. It's one of our favorite topics, uh, as Christoph could tell you. Uh, because sure. we're we're largely a political show. We're mostly talking about government policy, but you approach this problem of better outcomes with regard to building great teams. And your company consults with employers to help them find better candidates. So aside from curtailing bad behaviors, can you describe what you're looking for when you talk about an enhanced culture? Sure, you bet. Um, it's 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 a pretty specific uh, easy to understand statement. It's basically a human community specifically designed to create a social context uh, that accounts for the operating rules of the human brain to then create a specific outcome. So I know that kind of sounds schmancy, but but basically what it is is that you have a mission, that the group is designed to achieve a particular mission, uh, and, and that that mission is supported by relationship building, and the relationship is building is supported by investing in the humans in the group and by giving them a social context from which they respond to, and you'll see this is a reoccurring theme today, um, then then you're able to uh, enhance the right behaviors, we'll just say that the correct behaviors, uh, that then supports the mission. And oh, by the way, uh, in doing so, you are also uh, advancing job satisfaction and you're advancing a sense of ownership you're advancing that feeling of being part of something larger than oneself. Uh, so it's, it's, there's, there's about five or six wins in a row here when you use this process. Um, and that social context that relates itself to the human brain is a series of sophisticated do's and don'ts. Uh, there's certain behaviors every group is performing that they got to stop if they want a more collaborative work group. And there's a list of behaviors that people are, are not using that need to start if you want a more collaborative group. And I have a, I don't know, I probably have a hundred of the do's and don'ts. And when I go into a group, I can pretty much look at within uh, just a, a couple days and a few interviews, uh, the things you're doing, you got to stop and the things that you're not doing that you need to start. And uh, after the training starts, those are eventually dumped into performance expectations. Mm. Yeah. And they're, they're, they become required as part of your employment. Well, and I imagine that you have, you know, differing because you talk about the lost art of collaboration and, and people have different ideas about what that means to collaborate, oh, yeah. to work together. If, oh, I mean, yeah. if, if everybody agreed on how to reduce conflict, there would never be any conflict. So I, I know that you have like a, a long, like you said, you know, dozens or hundreds of, of do's and don'ts, but uh, can you boil it down to a few specifics that you want to talk about? Yeah, sure. Um, let me just reach over here right now because I, I, I was anticipating that question. So uh, the part of what I had sent in the backup material was was kind of the initial collaborative group behaviors that I expose a group to. And and they might be doing some of these things, but chances are if they've called me, they're, they're not doing them. Uh, so uh, go back a little bit. There, there's eight different categories that I hit. It's, it's mission, culture, effective interpersonal relationship, high quality communication, technical competency, productivity, problem solving, and continuous improvement. So I, I take those eight categories and under each one of those categories, I have lists of, of behaviors to start and behaviors to stop. 
So for instance, in the, the ones that are kind of the low hanging fruit, we'll just stay with culture, effective interpersonal relationships is, you know, avoid inappropriate uh, comments in, in public forums. You know, and people go, well, what does that mean? Well, I, I explain it to them in the training, you know, and it's in, and yeah, it, it includes you know, your, your angry outbursts in the lunchroom and capturing a whole bunch of, 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 uh, of fellow workers involuntarily in the lunchroom that don't know what to do about Bill, because that's kind of what Bill does every lunchtime is start spouting <laughs> off his bullshit. Right. Mm. Um, and that's not allowed anymore. Right. It's just it's not OK. It, it, it forces everybody's brain from the frontal cortex into the amygdala. And that'll be a reoccurring theme today as well. Um, any type of bullying behavior, you know, mm-hmm. uh, hey, what is that? I describe it and uh, that's out. You know, can't do that anymore. I imagine that's um, a real problem for Trumpers. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, getting along with your your fellow workers is now part of your job. Mm. Uh, when people hear that for the first time, they just, sometimes they just flip. They just like, wait a minute, that's not part of my job. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> right. It is now. Now what's, what's, what's amazing here is how people react to it initially. And then how people react to it six months later, mm. because as soon as you're able to codify and make that a performance expectation, people love working in an environment like that you know i thought john and maintenance just didn't give a shit about me but what really was he had a problem with how we were solving problems but i thought it was me Mm. but now because his relationship with me is 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 now considered important and is now considered part of the mission i like the way i'm being treated now and in fact there's been multiple statements made many times over the many years where people came up to me and said, you know what? I've never been treated so well at work before. And, and then, and then, and then it's just a matter of standing back and, and making things happen because they'll, they'll, they'll jump in with both feet. Um, another example is um, must have the ability to deal with adversity in the workplace while maintaining a professional relationship. Now, for most people, that starts to get pretty complicated. But as I take them through the training, they go, oh, I get it. I get it. Um, and people are actually pretty smart. You know, the, the problem with the world today, this is one of those statements, right, is that people are chronically undertrained. You know, we ask them to do things. We think we could show them a five-minute training video and everything's fine. Uh, but we ask them to do things that they're just not trained to do. So they fail. They're embarrassed. They're humiliated. They get angry, um, and you know, and then it's just a shit shit show after that, right? Mm-hmm. So training really is the key. And then I'll I'll leave you uh, one last one: is uh, when you get angry, don't attack. You know, use savoir faire, and I define what savoir faire is. And and really, if if you're pissed off and you're angry, uh, what you used to do is attack. But what you're going to do now is is go to your supervisor's office and tell him, hey. I'm angry. And he's going to say, well, what's going on? And you're going to work it out. Right. And all of a sudden people are going, wow. So I've, you know, I've never used my supervisor for that purpose before. Uh, I don't know how many times I've heard that. And then of course the supervisors are going, holy shit. Now you got me, you want me to resolve conflicts? I said, yes. And this is how, this is how I'm going to give you the training. Right? Mm. And so uh, w- once people start, people initially exposed to these rules, it's just really 
wackadoodle for them. But once they start living by the rules, they just love it. They just love it. In fact, I had one guy tell me about 25 years ago. He goes, hey, Bob, do you know what? I go, what's that? He goes, this stuff works at home, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really interesting that you said that because as I was reading your materials today and as I was reflecting on this a little bit and, and hearing you talk now, I mean, this seems like just great uh, ways of running any group, regardless of the group, right? Whether that be a corporation or whether that be a factory floor, whether that be um, a family structure or frankly, a group of friends, right? Or a group of friends. I think that there's a lot of value to extract from that perspective. I wondered too, Bob, uh, are you typically working with like the whole range of companies? So ranging from, let's say, you know, a uh, manufacturing company all the way up to a white collar company or uh, or not up necessarily across to a uh, white collar company. I'm just curious in terms of because uh, I mean, I, I I'm fortunate to work in a in, in a really progressive company and, and it's very flat. It's very um, is not hierarchical. It is very it is it is an environment that sort of incorporates a lot of what I'm hearing um, explicitly through training ex- and and through culture. Um, but I've not always worked in those environments. I mean, I've worked in law firms that are like top down hierarchical. You might as well be in the army type environments, right? You just shut up and do what you're told, and you certainly don't complain about it. So anyway, my my question is, what kind of companies are 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 coming to you and asking you uh, for your help for your expertise? Well, um, it's it, that's I, I've, I'm asked that question often. Um, <laughs> humans are humans wherever you go. Mm-hmm. And so uh, because we have 10 fingers and 10 toes and two eyes, um, we have a lot in common. And and one of the things that we have in common is we fall into very similar traps of things that we're doing that we need to stop and, and very similar traps of things that we're not doing that we need to start. Um and so uh, it's not unusual to find very progressive companies using these same principles uh, because um, they found the same, they found out the same thing I did, basically. Uh, so humans are humans wherever you go. And um, so it doesn't matter if it involves collaboration between humans, that that's all that counts. When, when I started uh, with that initial agency that, that Sean was talking about, um, I just kept trying new things. I, I walked into my first management position at a brand new agency. I had no idea what I was walking into. And it was just a giant buzzsaw. Mm. Um, and things went horribly wrong. Um, and uh, it, it took me about two or three weeks to get my feet on the ground to figure out that, holy shit, I, I either need to leave or I got to change this place. And, um, and after there was an act of a physical intimidation, um, that kind of pissed me off. And I thought, you know what? <laughs> I'm staying. Um, <laughs> now it 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 took, you know, the 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 initial phase took a, a year and a half or two years. Uh, that was the roughest part. And then year three, four, and then year five, six. And year five, six is when the awards. That's when we turned into an industry leader. We had, had morphed from Wild West to industry leader. So I collected these behaviors. I kept throwing more do's and don'ts. Uh, on the uh, the quarterly uh, shift change uh, shift expectations memo as a twenty four hour department, um, and I think I, I started finalizing my list probably in the late nineties. So this list was being built over a period of uh, ten to twelve years, uh, and I 
didn't know exactly why everything worked. I had a pretty good idea why it worked, but it didn't really matter to me why. So what I spent my time doing over the last 10 years is digging through to find out what other people found out. And what other people found out was basically the same thing I did, whether it was Maslow's, Hertzberg, Schutz, Gintis, um, uh, the, the list goes on and on of, of who found out kind of what makes the human tick and what are the things they got to stop doing? What are the things they got to start doing? And how do you implement that? And they, it, and so I was able to find a reservoir of kindred spirits who had come to the same conclusions. And this is the long way of answering your question, which is humans are humans wherever you go. Right. <laughs> there you go. Universal you know, Well, it, it's interesting because you talk about this and obviously you got thrown into this situation where there was this like kindergarten level of behaviors going on and uh, you couldn't get rid of any of those people. You couldn't screen them. You just had to work with what you had. And furthermore, you had to work your way up uh, in the group. So, uh, I, but now you have a, a screening test that you've developed and it might help for us to, aside from these kindergarten level behaviors, um, what are some of the other things that you're talking about in the negative space that, that you, you are screening people out for? Like what, what would re result in someone being rejected? Um, what kind of psychological traits would you reject a person for? Well, um, without tipping my hand and giving you the answers to the test, uh, which, <laughs> which <laughs> it, but I understand the question uh, and I, I, can, I can answer it, I think. In, a in way. general terms. Makes sense. Look, um, there is um, there are people that you know are not very nice to their neighbors. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're, you're like in your neighborhood and stuff. And, 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 and those same people might not be very nice to their fellow drivers on the road. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And those people oftentimes are not very nice to their fellow workers in their workplace. They don't put their shopping carts away. I was just going to say that. <laughs> yeah. That's sort of our favorite hobby horses here on yeah. the Radical Seculars to talk about people who don't return their shopping carts. Because there's it's a fundamental there, thing. There's no accountability there. It's, it's all interdirected. And, and so you have to decide that you care enough to do that. And so it's a very uh, keen test of morality as far as we're concerned. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you know how I deal with that? When, when, if, if I'm getting out of my car and this, this, and I had the opportunity to do this just uh, uh, two days ago, I'm getting out of my car and I see somebody slipping their cart into a stall that could occupy a car, you know, mm -hmm. but now it can't because there's a cart there. <laughs> um, what, what, what I do is I walk over and I go, Hey, I'll take that over for you. Oh, that's great. Ah. That's perfect. Cause then you're that you're, that's great. Cause now you're robbing them of, right. You're, 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 you are shaming them like invert, like sort of an inverted shame. It's beautiful. It's While beautiful. being super nice and outgoing and kind exactly. and basically, yeah, that's perfect. And, that's and, perfect. and the look on their face says everything. Their look on their face is like going, I'm so fucked right now. And, <laughs> what are they going to yell at you? You and, know, <laughs> and I have to tell this guy, thank you. Exactly. Exactly. What are they going to yell at you? Because they, they already think you're right. They've already been identified as an asshole. And so yeah. they came in there. Then you box them into a corner. They have to say thank you. And they, they have to say thank you. That's beautiful. I'm going to use that. Me too. I'm, that's that's a huge takeaway. That's awesome. You, you got and you got me on one of my favorite subjects. Here's I, one more on the shopping cart. Um, you're, you're going through Costco 
and and all of a sudden the traffic in the track and the the lane is kind of stopped or, or it's plugged up. You finally get to the to the uh, to the accident or whatever's causing the traffic flow to stop, and it's because somebody has walked away and left their cart right in the middle of the aisle, and they've walked down another aisle or something like that. They just left their cart there, so everybody's having to maneuver around the cart and stuff like that. <laughs> what I do is I take their cart and I just sail it down another aisle way off to the side. Uh-huh. <laughs> so when they come back, it's they got to go look for it. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Oh, that's great. That yeah. is too great. Oh, man. Because it's, it. it's really, it's really, do I give a shit about people I don't know? Yes. Yes. Do I yes. give a shit about people I don't know? This yep. is the core issue that we have in our politics. It's it's everything. Um, mm-hmm. Until it happens to you. It's that's like that song, uh, the yep. Lady Gaga song, Until It Happens to You. And um, that's really it. So um, there's a huge cost to this. And I think that it goes beyond the corporate culture for sure. But if you had to come up with an estimate, you know, um, putting aside the terrible effects that we all know about bad government policy, how much are these kinds of bad behaviors, inferior workplace cultures costing us as a civilization? It is so massive. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. In in other words, and, and I've been asked this before, and, I, and I'm going to give you a number um, based on my experience. Uh, it's just a series of anecdotal, anecdotal experience. I've, um, I, I've been told I, I need to start measuring this, and I, I probably will get around to that at some point. I'm pretty busy, but it's so high, it's unbelievable. Um, if you look at how groups are comparing themselves to mediocre standards, which always allows them to define success uh, based on what they're wanting to define success on, so they look good instead of actually are good. Um, all I can tell you is that every time you reduce fear in the work group, productivity goes up. Every time you teach a person how to enhance their relationships at work, productivity goes up. Every time you give people the training they need, productivity goes up. Every time you remove bullying behavior from the group, productivity goes up. Every time you build a continuous improvement strategy into the group, productivity goes up. Um, and, and, and I could literally go down a list uh, that would take an hour to consume our time. Mm-hmm. And they all result in productivity going up. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the worldwide, uh, the pre-COVID worldwide GDP was, but it used to be floating around 85 or $90 trillion a year. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, if, if you were able to do this, um, and, and, and of course, this is on the both ends of the spectrum. This is the spectrum of, of, of you know, the, the kind of the median income, planet income, down to including the $2 billion living on $2 a day, um, I, I think you would see, it, you know, it's if everybody, right? Of course, that's not nonsensical, but uh, it's it, we're, we're missing by at least 50%. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's probably about $45 trillion of wealth generation opportunity that's lost uh, mm-hmm. on the planet. 
Um, and you can imagine what type of wealth generation that does. You can you can increase the amount of coffers, uh, your tax coffers, without raising taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, you're able to uh, capitalize things like clean energy without breaking the budget. I mean, you, the the lost opportunities. Um, if you talk about them too much, it'll just just bring tears to your eyes. But we we are missing we are missing by that much. And and if you add that on top of bad government policy, and you add on top of that bad environmental policy, and what we're doing, how much uh, damage we're doing to the environment, and how much uh, opportunity cost having low taxes and 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 low public services and low education and all of those things, you, we, we're probably we could probably double our prosperity if we just took care of those three problems. Mm. I, I don't I don't have any disagreement with that. Um, the key is how you do it, um, and it, so so not only do you know not only do you know not only do you have to know excuse me uh, what to do, uh, but you 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 need to know how you're going to implement it. And of course, that's always the sticking point. I think we have a lot of philosophical things that we agree to, but how you get them implemented is 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 that's where the the devil is in the detail for sure. But yes, I agree. I mean, there's huge gaping opportunities that we're missing. And uh, by my estimation, on my experience of doing this for 40 years is we're not missing by a little bit. We're missing by a whole bunch. Yeah. Which means huge opportunity. Very good things could be happening that are not happening. Yeah. And you've said uh, that one of the biggest hurdles that you have to face is that in groups with inferior performance, those are the very ones that don't see the need to improve. And mm-hmm. it, it kind of seems like a version of Dunning-Kruger where the stupid people think that they know everything and the wise people are full of doubts. So what does it really take for uh, a group to get to that Houston, we have a problem kind of moment? Sure. Um, very familiar with Dunning-Kruger. Um, I, and and whenever I talk about this subject, I like to remind people that they're talking about all of us. So, so (laughs) we don't know what we don't know. Right. And, and we have a propensity to, um, uh, we have a propensity to have a blind spot with anything that we're not familiar with. Uh, and we try to logic our way through it. And, you know, sometimes we, we do a pretty good job. But a lot of times under very specific areas of, of uh, cognitive requirements, um, we fail miserably. And so when, so the first thing I always remind everybody is that we all got a blind spot. Um, and if I'm doing a public presentation, I just say, hey, what's yours? Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 no, yeah, very uncomfortable conversation to have. <laughs> It's not it's not embarrassing. Like I am not embarrassed that I don't understand uh, nuclear physics, you know, to the level of being able to I mean, I the, the basics, obviously, but I would never want to talk to an expert about a nuclear reactor. Like never like, <laughs> right, you know, unless right. I was listening and learning something from him or her. Right. <laughs> but um, what we what you want is if if the question is, is posed to, to the larger society as to whether or not it is, a, it is a viable alternative for energy sourcing. Oh, yeah. Well, we can know those kind of, but I'm just talking about like. Well, what I'm saying, no, what I'm saying is you've done enough investigation where you've formulated an opinion, regardless of what the opinion is. Mm-hmm. You've g- gathered enough information 
that you formulated an opinion on nuclear power as a viable or not a viable source for energy, mm-hmm. uh, whereas a lot of people are either for or against nuclear energy, yes. and they haven't done the level of investigation necessary mm, that would right. qualify them to even make that decision, right? Exactly. Even the most basic, right? Even yes, those that, exactly. those that, that even just to be able to say like, yeah, I think it's generally a good idea or generally, but they're doing this purely on tribalism ideas, right? What they were told or whatever well, else. I, I saw China syndrome. You know, yeah. and that's it. So one of the reasons problem solving is one of the big eight is because there is a ubiquitous uh, preponderance of human behavior out there that really thinks that people typically think they're good problem solvers when actually they're not. Um, because I uh, hold on to my job. I have a driver's license. Um, I have I have a mortgage. Um, I, I qualify as a good problem solver, and uh, once again, that's the mediocre bar of success. And so, I teach problem solving, and I and one of the things I teach as part of the problem solving process is how to recognize a problem and how to accept something as a problem that you didn't see as a problem before. Uh, and when I start giving that training in those presentations, you see light bolts going off all over the place. Um, and and I'll tell you what, it, it, it takes a whole different course of action. Of course, now problem solving requires a higher cognitive function. Um, and a lot of times you'll notice that problem solving is, is usually allocated for the leader because it's not it's not typical. It people need training. We're not we're not born how to build next year's nest, you know, as part of our wiring. We have to be trained in this stuff, and uh, and part of that training is going into people's blind spot and you know giving them the bad news that you know you, you're not as good as you think you are. So just <laughs> just but stay with me until an hour from now, and we'll talk about how you can be an improved problem solver. So anyway, long answer to that one, but but this is this is. It's right on point because, for example, you know, getting back to this example of of nuclear energy and whether it's a good idea or not, there are people who have PhDs in environmental economics and they cost all that stuff out. Life life cycle analysis. They do all of those things where you there, there is a factual answer to that question. It's not a matter of opinion. And even though I have an opinion on this, I haven't done you know twenty years of research. And so, if I was <laughs> going up to somebody who who uh, actually had the numbers and could 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 make that presentation, I would have to accept their answer because I am not uh, capable of disputing that unless they were just acting in bad faith. Well, part of what you do also is you look at their resume. Is this an expert that I can trust? Mm-hmm. Is this, you know, is this somebody that has a, a financial bent? Um, you know, in other words, <laughs> is advancing the uh, the nuclear energy industry something that lines their pockets? You know, I mean, you go through the typical resume analysis to determine is this an expert I can trust? And the and so that's what you do. You select out your experts, and of course, that's uh, you know, having experts advise you is kind of under fire nowadays because everybody sees themselves as the expert, and uh, that's a yeah. problem, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it seems like a serious problem to me. I mean, I just want to quote real quick what you wrote in in your thing because I, I highlighted it because I just thought it was so in your uh, your materials that you that you forwarded us. It says the farther our education and training support for our neighborhoods falls behind, the inability to keep pace widens the margin between the available useful information and those who need it but don't receive it. This ever widening margin results in our communities being spawning grounds of ignorance. And I was just I read that. 
And I was just like, I mean, it sort of, I think, really just connects to what we're talking about right now, which is like, like, right, as the world becomes more complex, and it does become more complex, like exponentially more complex, and the, and and the education system woefully stay, sort of falls behind, and we end up with people like Dunn and Kruger. I mean, the, the data, you know, Dunn and Kruger effect. That doesn't even begin to describe the the capacity for people to really believe that they know what they're talking about. And by the way, throw in ideas like conspiracy theories and religion and all these ideas that basically allow you to think whatever you want to think. And in fact, that's encouraged um, on the political right. As we talk, we're not talking about politics specifically today but i mean it, it fits right it fits yeah it it, it really does and um and, and you guys i'm sure have looked at the the information and the data of how quickly world knowledge is changing mm-hmm. um you can't even have a printed library really anymore i mean with with some of the reference <laughs> you can, but it's changing so fast um that the gap between what we know and and what people are receiving in terms of information is uh, is is accelerating at a, uh, a, a I'll say a worrisome pace. Worrisome. Yes. Well, <laughs> and that's that's uh, brings me to my next question, and that is, sure. <clears throat> do you think this lack of enhanced culture and this sort of you know people dragging on experts uh, is this a problem that's been created by accelerating change or that we see we've seen certainly in the last you know 40 or 50 years in our civilization or is this something that's kind of been a consistent problem through the ages hmm. well i think that um yeah i was very um you, you had forwarded these some of these questions ahead of time and i was very um uh, excited about um, answering this question. Uh, it, 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 it goes a little bit beyond my my typical you know uh, workplace approach and stuff, but it's it's definitely an area that uh, is uh, a subject matter that is near and dear to my heart. Um, we we have this this balance between order and chaos, and if you're a student of history, you can see that. Order brings with it a huge amounts of op- opportunity. Structure is allows for the very effective and very efficient movement of goods and services, and with the right policies, the goods and services to humans, our fellow humans, and and to a planet in need. Right. Um, uh, at, at the same time, uh, order uh, because it is just a, a, a kind of a, a, a singular, a single-minded archetype um, has to be balanced with chaos because chaos is where creativity is found. Uh, chaos is where you disrupt things in the order that don't work anymore, right? And so there's a constant movement back and forth. And of course, with chaos comes a lot of destruction, a lot of inefficiency, and a lot of things going wrong. But order by itself can't operate in a way that advances, I think, the human. So, um, so I think that, that that pendulum swinging back and forth has always been there. It's always been part of our historical norm. However, I think uh, the rate at which it is moving um, is accelerated based on new information coming in at just light speed. Um, the other thing that's so that's that's that was kind of the worrisome trend that we were talking about is things are changing faster than people can catch mm-hmm. up with it but the other advantage i think that we're seeing in the last 50 years 
is that when you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, or you look at Gintis' study on uh, the human collaboration over the last 120,000 years, or you look at Hertzberg's work throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s on uh, hygiene versus uh, the real uh, 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 job satisfaction. If you look at Will Schutz, um, he's a he's a, another guy, and, and, a, and another guy that I've tied into is Robert Sapolsky. Um, what we've learned over the last 50 years answers a lot of questions of what's been going on for the last hundred thousand years. Mm-hmm. So, so even though, so there's a double-edged sword, even though there's, there's a, the pendulum is accelerated based on this chaos and, and order movement. That, and it's a movement that's always been there. We've also learned so much more about able to go back and rethink and re-answer some of the questions that we've had for a millennium. Uh, that we can now answer, right? So, um, so I think overall, um, if you want, uh, um, if, if you want to improve the human condition, if you want to have a more perfect union, uh, if you want to advance social enlightenment, um, these are all things that need to be subject to that swinging pendulum. Um, and 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 I think what we need to do is just feed the machine. Is that when when we are in a chaotic situation, um, you voice. What you think is reason, you stay in the fight, you don't withdraw, um, and and then uh, as order starts to take over again, and and inevitably it will, as far as we know, as long as we don't burn ourselves up, uh, because it always has, um, the order will follow, and it'll be a new kind of order, and it'll incorporate some of those improvements. It won't be perfect, but at some point we'll outgrow that order again. And uh, we'll go into a, a, a place where we're, you know, order is not responding to the solutions that we need for our problems as they arise now. Boom. Then we jump back into that cycle. So um, so this is it's during this kind of conversation that I just tell people, stay in the fight. Just stay in the fight. Understand that chaos and order are, 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 are two uh, uh, co-companions of, of the same basic human process. It's messy. We wish it was different. There's no, uh, as far as we know, we can't make it different, but stay in the fight, be involved and you won't always win. But if you stay involved, you're, you're going to have some sort of impact that shows up on that next cycle. Hope that makes sense. Yeah, it sure does. Sure and, does. you know, of course, uh, <clears throat> you know, Christoph and I are commiserating earlier in the show because this is about the bleakest news segment that we've ever, we've ever done in terms of just the, the craziness and the chaos that's going on in our country right now. And, yeah. um, are, are you optimistic? Um, I, um, I have to kind of redefine that word a little bit. <laughs> I, I believe, um, in optimism as a tactic, um, but not as a strategy. Uh, I, I believe optimism is is something that allows us to keep uh, under under times of threat and fear, allows me to keep my uh, thinking in the frontal cortex instead of the amygdala. As you guys probably well know, the amygdala is fight, flight, and freeze. We're starting to add freeze to that little mm-hmm. toolbox. Mm-hmm. Very little toolbox, by the way. Um, whereas the frontal <laughs> cortex is, yeah. is the source <laughs> of rational, logical, and ethical thoughts that precede rational, logical, and ethical behaviors. So for, from, an opt, from an optimism standpoint, um, I use that as a tactic, not as a strategy. So going back, how do I feel about 
the direction the world's going from a strategical perspective, um, I, I'm all over it. I, I, I think, um, and I know this is maybe contrary to what a lot of people are saying right now, but I'm a, I'm a student of Will Durant. You know, I'm a, I'm a student of historians. Um, and do I call myself a historian? I don't know. Other people do. <laughs> um, and I'm trying to, I, I'm kind of, I try to be careful about following the rules of a good historian. But if I compare where we were, uh, you know, now to 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago, um, I think our, our, our improvement is breathtaking. And I think as long as we don't destroy ourselves, our, our, the line of best fit on this fabulously undulating graph that's hard to look at <laughs> mm-hmm. because it is so messy um, is, is hard to deal with. But I think from a historical perspective, like I said, as, unless somebody pushes the button, burns, our, burns us up or something like that, um, I, I think we're well on our way. And I think it's just, it's a messy conundrum. Um, and also, and one of the ways I, I make that comparison um, to, to completely answer your question is I look at the problems that we're dealing with right now compared to the problems that we were dealing with maybe a thousand years ago. Um, so I understand that some of these cycles are wider than the human lifespan. You know, mm-hmm. some of these cycles between chaos and, 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 uh, and order uh, are, are longer than 80 years. So I, I might be born into a cycle and maybe never see this thing that's coming, but history tells me it is. Um, and that perhaps if I stay in the fight, I will, uh, I will impact positively the life of my great grandchild that I'll never know. Uh, yeah. But that's my job as a human to do that. My job as a human is to improve, improve the plight of others that I do not know. Um, I think as a, as a good humanitarian, a good humanist, um, and, and so I am, I am, uh, I am a believer in wide cycles. And as long as I have that perspective, I'm, I'm, I'm wildly, um, I, I favor the human of hum- I, I favor the future of humanity. If I was a betting man, um, that's where I'd place my bets is that we're, we're going to continue with that line of best fit, even though from decade to decade, it might ne- not necessarily look like that from time to time. That's, that's really thoughtful, man. I, I you know, uh, earlier in the show, I mentioned, and I mentioned this frequently on this show, and that is that I'm an Obama Democrat. And yes, I'm black. And so, yeah, obviously I have an affi- affiliation, you know, affin- a- affinity for, for Barack Obama, but it's beyond that. Um, because really what it is, is right, you know, people ask him, and I probably have told this story already, um, but people ask Obama how he has dealt with Trump, right? And how he like undoing his legacy step by step, trying to undo. And his answer is like, well, it's easy because I, oh, I never expected progress to be linear in one direction, right? I never expected that. Like that's, if you're walking into this thinking that, right, like, like that we have to be moving forward in an obviously straight direction all the time, then you're going to be in for a lot of disappointment because, right, it's like you say, a pendulum. But I would also say, uh, you know, it staggers forward, it staggers backward, and you don't even get to choose when you live in that staggering, right? Like, but, but the arc ultimately bends towards progress, right? Like, and it, it, the arc might be super long. I mean, we're talking like potentially, right? I mean, the entire dark ages, the entire dark ages for Christ, for fuck's sake, right? Like that was an entire step backwards that yeah. lasted yeah. that lasted forever, right? So that's what I'm saying. So, you know, I think it's just important to keep this in perspective. Um, But thanks for that, man. That was a really great answer. I really appreciate that. 
Yeah. Great question too, Sean. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was my, I, my, this motion is that the arc of uh, the moral universe has to be hammered toward justice. It just doesn't that's right on its own. Well, that's right. <laughs> that's very true. It, it but, takes our, it, it takes input. It requires input. But and I think um, that what you said, what you said too, Bob, was really important. And I'm glad that you brought that up, Sean, the hammering, because it's not enough to just sit around and wait for it to happen. Right. We have to do work. You said you kept saying, Bob, stay in the fight. Yep. Stay in the fight, right? Keep things in perspective and stay in the fight. Show up every day and continue to do what you can do, what I can do as a humanist, as an Obama Democrat, uh, right? Because Obama would always say also that, like, you know, he is just carrying the torch for these eight years, but the torch, right? And, 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 um, and then you, and then you hopefully pass the torch on to of progress to the next person to continue to continue to move the ball forward for all of us. But it's important that we all continue to show up and and don't have any illusions that uh, that that this is going to happen if we just sit around and watch Netflix all day. We, we have to do stuff. Well, uh, you're, I think you're spot on. Uh, you know, we are lovers of Barack Obama in this house, and the the predominant reason, aside from his eight years imprint on American society and American culture uh, is, is also his operating philosophy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, and, and we just so happen to have very similar operating philosophies, which is exactly that. Um, this is, this is uh, something that requires your participation and, and immediate gratification just might not be there. And that's no excuse not to participate. Right. Exactly. And so he does. He says that all the time. All, he says the time. all the time. All the time. That is like yeah. his operating philosophy. That was a really great way to put it. Yeah. And we so we, we just we're we just love him. I just we just we love listening to him. We're just we're just enamored. Um, I'll never forget his first speech. Oh, out of, at the Democratic uh, National Convention way back when. And it just blew me right out of my socks. And I go, oh, my God, I, I hope this guy moves forward. And then when he said, you know, he was a first time senator from Illinois going for the presidency, I thought, oh, my God, <laughs> no, Holy that's shit. like that's never going to happen. And boom. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to bring this down to because, Bob, sure. I know you, you have an engineer engineering background and I do as well. And so what we're talking about, though, in this in this kind of of undulation or whether you like a seismograph or whatever, but (laughs) we're talking about unstable systems, potential for unstable systems. You know, if you have some something that's oscillating, you're fine as long as it's damped or as long as you're not going, you know, the gain isn't too high, whatever. You're not you're not going to go into oblivion. And that is something that we're you know, that we're seeing that that could be. You know, there's there's a there's a higher chance of that now than there was you know at other times, and and there's something that you also talked about in your materials about this relationship between anger and fear, and I do believe that it is that relationship between anger and fear that is driving our country insane. And I want to know what we can do about it and what you do about that in the workplace. Uh, got it. Um, our our the the behavior you, we use to respond to our environment is, is, is completely contextualized by the environment we're experiencing. Um, if, if you grew up in a household where you had good mentors, uh, that, you know, supported your, the, the you know, that your passions or your bliss or your daemon, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it doesn't matter. It could have been a school teacher or an uncle or your, one of your parents or both parents, whatever. 
and and you grew up in a household that you know everybody's opinion was respected around uh, the dinner table how i contextualize the social input that i'm getting from the environment around me is going to be very different than a person who uh didn't have those things growing up so that's so that's where it starts so now when you're basically bringing into the group which is it, this is another way of saying it and it's it's not meant to condensate people at all but basically what you're doing is you're bringing into the group healthy adult behaviors uh, that support your objectives while not taking away from the objectives of the group or the family or the other person in their car driving down highway five. So the, you, and most people see um, uh, the game of life that as my pie piece of pie gets larger, yours gets smaller. Uh, and what we understand is that most people grew up in an area of scarcity mentality versus the alternative, which is abundance mentality. Mm. So, so one of the things you, I heard, I've heard over and over again, and I mentioned it earlier, but I'll reemphasize it now, which is, hey, did you know these things work at home too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, actually making sure your child is getting the right training at school. Or, or making sure that um, that that perhaps your spouse's anger is found within a situation where they're fearing that they're not going to get what they need in the relationship. In other words, it's just another level of sophistication. It's it's highly refined relationship building. It's looking at human needs, um, and and if people are not getting what they need, they feel threatened. They slip into the amygdala, and the next thing you know, all I can do is I got these three tools that don't help me. And mm-hmm. and if and if all of a sudden you're on the receiving end of that, and you start to recognize that, and go, hey, you know what? Why are you angry? And we're just starting to have a different level of communication that inquires into a, a more effective problem-solving process. So, so what ends up happening is when people have gone through this program and, and they've actually included all the do's and don'ts and stuff like that, they just become more effective humans. Uh, they, and, and wherever they go, humans are humans wherever you go, they just become more effective. They become more effective on how they deal with the clerk. They become more effective on how they deal with things at home. Um, they just become more effective humans. And there's probably nothing more satisfying for the human uh, than to become a more effective human, especially if they were raised in a, in a social context that didn't help them do that as they grew up. To, to these people, it's just a revelation. It's just like, oh, my God, you know, where have you been all my life type of a mm-hmm. situation. Yeah, it's like you got to get them over the hump, though, of of of, of acceptance. It's it's almost like we look at our our, our situation right now, where here you got uh, President-elect Biden, and he is trying to tell America we need to come together, we need to work together, we need to solve these problems. And there are other people who are looking at him as if he's the Hatchet Man, uh, you know, coming into the group to wreak havoc. And and that is if you are a you know white supremacist, somebody who doesn't like equality, somebody who wants to keep uh, taxes low on the wealthy, you know, all of the things that we know that Republicans do. And so Biden's coming in and they are literally saying things to him like, um, you're trying to change, 
you know, he's trying to change America and make it unrecognizable. This is their pitch mm-hmm. in the Georgia in the Georgia runoff that if you let him have the Senate, he is going to make America unrecognizable. And I imagine that when uh, you get a group that is that is full of fear and anger and thinks that anybody coming in from the outside is a hatchet person, um, they're going to resist in much the same way. And I'm just wondering, like, I don't know, I don't know, the metaphor might not quite fit, but I'm just wondering if you think that's something that uh, that matches between the corporate environment and the nation. So that's an excellent question. Um, And uh, and I'll answer it two ways. Uh, How it how it uh, how it corresponds and how it doesn't. Um, the way it doesn't, uh, starting with the second one first, uh, how it doesn't is that um, if if all of a sudden um, I'm making your uh, uh, your compliance to these new collaborative behaviors a condition of your employment, well, that just up the ante. I I actually have something on you that's a really too hot for you to handle. So the decision that you're going to have to make is. Do I am I repulsed enough by these new collaborative behaviors uh, to go find another way to pay the rent? And 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 most people in these situations won't do that. They'll say, "Well, let me wait and see." Mm-hmm. You know, when you say I got to get along with my fellow worker, and I and I immediately have Bill's picture in my face. I was just like, "Oh, dude, how's this going to work?" You know, but. Because finding another way to pay the rent can be such a, a, a burdensome decision to make, I'll just do a wait and see. So that's that's how it doesn't apply because you actually have you kind of have them by hostage a little bit, just enough for them to wait and see. And then if what happens most of the time is if they wait and see, they like what they see. Uh, not only when they when you first come up to them, they go, "Oh my God, I have to do these things." But what really changes their mind is when other people are doing those things to them in the new group. And they're going, wow, I, I like to be treated like this. <laughs> All of a sudden, my supervisor is going, hey, John, that was a great idea. In fact, we're going to change things around here based on what you told me. She's for, for most people, that's never happened in their life before, right? Okay, so that's how it doesn't correspond um, or how it does doesn't correspond. How it does correspond is this. Humans have certain undeniable universal needs, but they don't know what that list is. They don't really understand why they're in the amygdala. So the the most important thing you can do if you want to persuade somebody that your finding is unpersuadable is you need to change your message. You need to change your message. Now, one of the things, uh, and this this gets into the very broad topic, so I'm going to keep this as short as I can um, into snippets and bullets, but you got to change your message. And, and then the, the question is, well, what, what do I say in my new message? Um, and so that's one thing. Then, then the second thing is that once you dev- design the new message, method, message, and you and you know it's going to go well over time, you got to stay on that message. So those are the two places where people fall down all the time. One is they don't want to change their message because I just don't want to. Well, no, actually, you're going to have to because if you want to change your audience, you're going to have to talk to them in a way that they understand you, right? 
Um, and so, uh, and if you really let your mind run wild, um, you, you can see all kinds of opportunities for better messaging from the progressive arm of the, of, of the population. I mean, huge. Uh, and so let me just give you some for instances. Um, and, and I don't have all the answers, but I think I know where to find them. And, and I've been wanting to put this together in a paper and I've actually wanted to implement this. But just as an example, one and a half million people voted in Oklahoma. Um, and I think we all agree that Oklahoma is a red state. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and if you if you and, and what I do is I always break election results down to counties. So I, mm-hmm. I look at the I look at the United States in counties uh, to see what's blue, what's red. Right. Um, and and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But going back to Oklahoma, if you open up the county map, every single county went red. Now, even in Nebraska and Iowa, you could find a couple blue counties sprinkled in there, right? Mm-hmm. In Oklahoma, every single effing county was red, right? But you know what? Of that one and a half million votes, 500,000 of them were blue. Mm. So do you want, if you want to know how to bring 250,000 Oklahomans from red to blue, because that's what you want to do, right? Go ask them. Go ask the blue people that live in Oklahoma Mm -hmm. and ask them what message is going to resonate and what they're going to tell you based on my experience so far when I look at white rural populations is the messaging from the progressive arm of the, of, of the, of the, whether it's the democratic party or just the progressive thinking in the United States of America, our message is horribly flawed, horribly flawed, right? And, um, and it could, and, and, and so it go, 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 go to them and talk to them. Uh, also go to the blue counties within the red States and talk to them. Uh, you know, how did you get a majority in this County? What's going on here? What are the dynamics? What are the demographics? How is this working? What, it, what information do you have that I can use to change my messaging? And it, and if you, if you look at why that would work, all you got to do is look at history once again. Um, you know, in the in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the Republicans were getting chased out of the North, and they knew it, and they didn't have a place to go. So then they started the Southern strategy, and that's where they were able to leverage the the the, the race baiting. And um, this is when the Dixie Democrat turned into a Republican, right? Um, this is when Johnson put his pen down and said, uh, after the Civil Rights Act, uh, we've lost uh, the South for a generation. Um, well, he was just off by multiple generations, but anyway, we won't, <laughs> we won't quibble about that. Um, and, and one of the things that the that the far right learned to do is they learned very, very well um, during uh, the practice of their southern strategy from the seventies, eighties, nineties, and and to to today, um, they learned how to message uh, the white rural population in a way that keeps them captured. But the fact is, is if you're a white poor person in rural America, you have a shitty life. You, you have a job that doesn't pay enough. Uh, and if you want to take grandma to the doctor, you're driving a car that's way beyond its useful life. You have to take time off from a job you can't afford to take off because it only pays six bucks an hour. Um, and, and, and you have to drive 40 miles to the doctor because there's no hospitals in your neighborhood anymore. It's all gone. They've all been shuttered. They've all been closed. 
Um, and oh, by the way, if it's snowing, you this could be this could be death. And, and oh, by the way, because you're not going to get back in school at time, you're going you, and you don't have any opportunities for daycare. You're bringing your kids with you at the same time. Um, the delivery of, of services in cities is extremely efficient, right? Uh, one of the reasons Canada's healthcare goes up is because they got the population of California spread out over the size of the United States, right? Um, so the delivery of those services are different. And of course, and I think we've talked about this a little bit before, Sean, is that, you know, so the Republicans that that have learned to message the rural white poor have, have learned very well that once those services are delivered, uh, the demographic will change forever and they know it and they protect against it. Mm-hmm. But I would say this is that is that the progressive mindset is not helpless against their messaging mm-hmm. um, and that we need to design a new message. We need to go ask them. We need to go to them and ask them what they want to hear. Um, and of course, there are going to be issues with guns, uh, issues with pro-choice. You know, we, we know that those social issues are there. But we can also couple the messaging with maybe some really radical tactics like perhaps, you know, this system that preserves your right to a gun also preserves a woman's right to choose. So maybe maybe having a system that has rights is important, even though you don't always agree with it. You know, how's that as a matter, right? And I'm just throwing some things out there. I don't know if they stick to the wall or not. But my key here is that I know enough to know that our messaging doesn't resonate. Uh, you had McClyman's come out with the 10, 20, 30 uh, proposal. Are you familiar with that? Um, this is, this, this is a, a proposal um, that, would, that would dedicate 10% of the federal budget to go to the chronically uh, poverty-stricken counties that have, been, that have been suffering at least 20% of the population in poverty for the last 30 years, 10, 20, 30. Mm. And if you look at the size of the federal budget and you went into uh, these counties, and I I think if you look at the criteria, it's about 120 of the poorest counties in the United States of America. And if you just started sailing in the dollars Mm -hmm. into these poorest counties in in America, and and there's there's a couple in California, that you you would start to develop a message that says, "Hey, we're here for you. We we get it, we get it." Um, and 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 it's been a long time coming, and and we haven't really addressed your issues, and and we are now, and we're here to stay. Um, these these are huge gaping opportunities that we can just basically put our money where our fucking mouth is, and and make a change. And I'll and I'll tell you what, and I, and this this I will promise you, the moment it changes, it never goes back. Well, that's right. And that's what, what that's what uh, you were saying earlier is that the Republicans have they have a firewall against this. And the firewall is the word socialism. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they invoke that word, uh, all of the red county people in the United States think that their guns are going away, that their religion's going away, that uh, and all of a sudden People are going to get paid for doing nothing. And this is, this is um, actually it's, we've got about 15 minutes left uh, to talk to you. And I wanted, there's one other subject that I wanted to bring up. And this is something that's, that's just going to keep becoming more salient every election going forward. And that is that jobs are going away. A lot of jobs are going away. And 
they're being automated away, they're being exported, but mostly automated is, yeah. is what the real problem is. That's the problem that we can't fix, even if we could fix jobs for being exported. But there was an interesting book that was written in 2018 by a guy named David Graeber, and it's called Bullshit Jobs. And even beyond you know, the type of automation that is that is taking away, you know, truck driving jobs or, or, or car, you know, driving jobs in general or, or factory jobs. There's a lot of corporate work, ostensibly white collar jobs that are really unnecessary. I mean, they're just they're just make work jobs. And you would think that capitalism being what it is would would drive those jobs out of existence. But it, it doesn't work that way. And he, he basically goes through five categories that he calls uh, flunkies and goons and duct tapers and box tickers and taskmasters that are all all people who really don't need to be doing those jobs. <clears throat> and it just seems to be a part of our system that goes back to the Puritan work ethic and trying to keep I, I don't know. What, what do you think about all of that? Have you read his book? I, I have not read his book. Um, I tried to familiarize myself with that. Um, you know, I, I have, um, I, I haven't read the book, so I, I got to be careful about what I say. Uh, but just on the surface, um, I, I probably have, um, until I investigate more, some problems with the premise. Mm-hmm. Um, people are responding to the game that's, that they're born into. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if I was born into uh, 1920 Russia, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I, yeah. Would I, would I be a damn good Bolshevik? I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. but I was born into 1960s America. Um, and, and so, um, so one of the things to, to look at in terms of how people's roles are played out in the labor market is just so you know, the little people have almost nothing to do with the agenda. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I find some of the terms that he used to categorize these people as kind of pejorative. And well, and they were self-reported ter- like he, he sent out a bunch of surveys and he, I and the, it, it was, it was self-reported. And so that's, that's what I found so interesting about it. And um, he, he, it's, it's a controversial book. I'm not going to lie. There were some things in there that I didn't necessarily agree with, but I thought he had a real, a, a real point because it seemed to dovetail with a lot of what you've been saying about creating enhanced cultures. Cause in an enhanced culture, you wouldn't do those things. Yeah, well, yeah, a- absolutely. In fact, the enhanced culture, and I went through that list, um, the enhanced culture actually resolves every single one of those issues, mm-hmm. um, number one. Number two, uh, with an enhanced culture, can you do more with less people? Uh, the answer is yes, because uh, it, it, even though there is some hierarchy because you need leadership to keep the collaborative vessel in place, uh, it is a flatter organization, right? Because your frontline people uh, have learned to make really good decisions. Um, and they're mission-based or strategy-based or value-based decisions. They're, they've been doing it now for three or four or five or six or 10 years, and they're so good at it that you're, the amount of direct supervision just falls off the cliff. It's just almost non-existent. Um, so it gets rid of a whole strata of uh not first line supervisors, but like working foremen, but the, the middle management folks. Mm-hmm. Um, so is there a lot of unnecessary jobs based on that premise? The answer is yes. If you're able to enhance the culture in such a way that you remove your dependency on it. 
But the fact is, if, if people are not savvy on what the mission is and they don't know how to prioritize their work, then you need that person. But are they not necessary? If you do enhance, yeah, they become less necessary for sure. And, and this is something that, so maybe capitalism and automation and even your work becomes a victim of its own success because in a lot of areas of the country, we have, you know, this, it's going to, this is a perennial problem with technological change is that it tends to throw people out of work. Maybe it creates some new jobs, but ultimately we're moving toward a time where we're going to have to implement some sort of basic income and we're going to have to uh, have a safety net that's more than just for people who we consider to be unemployed. There may be permanent structural um, you know, uh, changes in terms of, of, of a lack of compensated labor. Like our people are not going to, they're not going to eat because they worked. They're going to eat because we feed everybody kind of thing. And there are a lot of people in those red states and counties that really don't like the idea of getting a government check under any circumstances. They feel that their work is a part of their identity. It's even something that Joe Biden really appealed to. A job mm -hmm. is more than a job. And this is something that, have you thought much about this? You know, uh, I, I have thought about it. I don't know how much, but I have. I think the, the old days of turning the uh, buggy whip maker into a car mechanic, you know, as the, the typical replacement scheme is over. Mm -hmm. um, we, we are in a situation where, you know, uh, I was watching a video the other day of these robots picking up uh, these, these generator engine blocks about, the, uh, about the, half the size of my house. <laughs> um, uh, these are these are giant robots picking up these giant engine blocks, and of course they're machining to the thousandths of an inch, right? So, mm -hmm. okay, um, and, and it's just a matter of time that if you want to have a body part replaced, you're going to go down to the shop right next to Ace Auto, um, and it's going to be a technician with a pocket protector in their in their pocket that's actually performing the surgery because they know all about the robot. Right. They don't have to know about the surgery anymore. Those days are over, right? And so <laughs> I, I think you're looking at wide-scale permanent unemployment that'll never come back. Um, and the number of jobs, which is which is always kind of kept pace with population, which I find fascinating, uh, which <laughs> is a separate subject that goes on for hours, um, uh, is it, that that's over. Those rules are all changing now with automation. Mm -hmm. And with the type of automation, you know, singularity at, you know, 2043, whatever, you mm -hmm. um, are just, we are accelerating towards a level of automation that will permanently un unemploy huge sectors of our population. And, and, and so what I would say is that um, we, we, we are going to be forced into a situation of providing people a paycheck. Um, uh, and, and you know what, but we do have the opportunity to change jobs. I mean, there, there's something that needs to happen in California forests uh, that we could be mm -hmm. paying people to do, right? Mm -hmm. um, there, there needs to be something that's happened that needs to happen with the plastic in the oceans. These are mm -hmm. huge, giant problems. Well, what if we just put more people on it, right? And all of a sudden, that check is coming from um, a, a government job instead of a private sector job. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. There's huge opportunities to put labor towards things that that would that need some full-time labor uh, that go beyond technology. Hard to develop a robot that's going to remove the fuel from a California forest, right? So I think there's still some opportunities, uh, but how far do you want to go? I mean, by the time 2050, 2060 hits, um, we, will, we will have figured this out. 
uh, but it but it's going to be a, a big issue. And uh, and and the old the old solution of just turning the bub, bub, buggy whip maker into a car mechanic it's not going to work. Yeah. Um, well, we're we're just about at time. Do you have any final thoughts you wanted to say about about your program or about anything at all, Bob? Sure. I, my concluding uh, comments are. Um, I, I think I think the, the the planet is a messy place to live, um, but I think overall, uh, if 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 people stay involved, um, that um, that things uh, will will always uh, resonate and, and get a little bit better each with each cycle. Um, I, I think it's it's important, um, you know, based on some of my earlier comments, to make sure that I'm not misunderstood, and that I think that my brothers and sisters that live in red states and, and think in terms of red policies are, are, are people that, um, uh, that I've met through my entire life and, and find that um, some of them would give you the shirt off their back. Right. So these are, these are salt of the earth, fellow human beings, fellow United States citizens. And I think that um, when they're exposed to messaging um, as a first step, but really exposed to actions that imbue their lives and help to solve problems that they thought was unsolvable, that you're going to see a, a process of unification. Uh, is that going to be easy? Is it No. Is it going to be fast? No. But um, my communication to, to uh, both the, the red and blue uh, brothers and sisters out there is that um, I, I think better times are on their way, uh, and it's just going to take a hell of a lot of hard work on everybody's part to to give something a chance that you're not you're not sure about, and uh, to try to stay out of your amygdala, start, try to stay in your frontal cortex, um, and understand that um, there's a lot of rational, ethical, and uh, logical people that you might disagree with, um, but at, but to but to give it a chance, and uh, and I think when we when we all try to create a little bit of space around um, our hard-fought opinions, um, that it, it breeds the opportunity for something to happen that we never thought could happen. So let's uh, let's use our imaginations and let creativity run wild a little bit, give it a little space, and uh, and, and see what opportunities uh, might show up that we didn't otherwise recognize. You can contact Bob Donaldson at leadershiptrainingexperts.com collaborative strategies at gmail.com or by calling 866-773-4473. This has been a wonderful experience. Thank you guys. It's been so great having you and uh, we really enjoyed it and we hope that we can have you back again sometime. Would love it. Would love it. Anytime. You bet. Wow, Christoph, I think there was a whole lot of food for thought there. What do you think? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation. Um, as I mentioned, you know, uh, I, I really identified with Bob and his approach. I think um, his discussion is certainly there at the end about bringing people together in terms of red states, blue states, et cetera, I think is it really just it really reminds me of the kind of rhetoric that we do hear from Obama. And as I, as I said in the show, uh, in the segment is, uh, you know, I'm an Obama Democrat. Um, and 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 it's not about race necessarily, although that's obviously part of it. It really is about this idea of um, you know that 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 
we can find common ground. And that doesn't mean that we accept the unacceptable. In fact, we shouldn't. And the Obama doctrine, I think, is um, is 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 both uh, carrot and carrot and stick. Um, but that said, that uh, you know, if we're able to, and I love that Bob talked about this, that if we're able to sort of change behaviors, understand people, help people change behaviors, and understand that those change in behaviors actually make your make you better off, not just financially or like a check or anything like that, but psychologically better off, right? It makes your life more livable. And I think that if we're able to, if, if we're able to find a way to sort of message that, he talked about messaging as well, about able to message that in a useful way. And that's a big uphill challenge to be certain, to be certain. Um, but nevertheless, if we are able to do that as progressives, uh, there, maybe there is hope. And again, Obama, right? Hope, and mm-hmm. uh, and I, I really liked when I'll end end with this. I really liked how he talked about uh, in terms of optimism, right, as a strategy, but not as a um, not as a doctrine, but as a strategy, right? As as a as a way of of thinking about the future and motivating people. Um, I thought that was really really good in general and really thoughtful. So anyway, my two cents is. Bob was awesome. I'm so glad he came on the show. And I and I really would love to, I'm really going to delve more into his materials because I think that it's really scalable down to the individual all the way up to the nation state and uh and 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 frankly a planet uh in terms of in terms of implications and and uh an application. Yeah, and I think that's great. Uh, I've I've known Bob a long time, and so I'm I'm familiar with some of what he said before. But but it, but him talking about this today with this election and with what's mm. going on right now was was kind of a new level. And he's and he's continued to develop his course materials quite a bit. And so you know I was really excited about that, and I'm also excited about the concept that we touched on, which is that once people in rural America, red state America start to understand what's in it for them. What mm. is in it for them in terms of supporting Democrats and supporting a, a broader inclusive prosperity, okay? It will never go back. And so it's all about starting that cascade. And if we can start that cascade, it will, it will, we will actually have the change that we've all been yearning for our entire lives. So once again, I wanna remind you to make sure and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're watching this on YouTube, be sure to hit that red subscribe button and be sure to give us a five-star rating on your podcast host and write us a review over at Apple. Positive podcast reviews at Apple will help us grow in the recommendations list faster than almost anything else. And tell your friends and family about our show. Word of mouth really matters. And look, thank you everyone for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be Radically Secular. You've been listening to the Radical Secular a podcast dedicated to the separation of church and state and the pursuit of justice. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel.